The following recording is from the pulpit at Northwest Baptist Church in Bradenton, Florida. For more sermons, please visit our website, nwbcbradenton.org. We'd also love to hear how you have been blessed by this ministry, so please let us know by emailing us at office at nwbcbradenton.org. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. Last week we saw how Paul gave an example to the Corinthians about how to exercise Christian liberty in his own life. And Paul says he does it all for the sake of the gospel. He becomes all things to all people so that he might win some. That's Paul's motivation. And now we move on to the 10th chapter in which Paul moves from instructions on how to exercise liberty. And now in the 10th chapter, he begins here by giving them warnings about the misuse of liberty and the dangers of overconfidence. In verse 1, this is what we read. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware brothers. What, Paul? What don't you want them to be unaware of? As you know, one of my passions as your pastor is to help you learn how to study and to read your Bibles. I have taught you many things, hopefully, and hopefully you pick up on these things as you hear me preach, some things to look for and things to look at in the text. One of the things I want you to learn is to look for connecting words. If we're going to interpret the Bible in context, there's in connecting words like so or therefore or for that help us connect sections together. And this chapter begins with one of those connecting words. The word for is a huge word. And if we don't understand what Paul says before that, we're not going to understand what he's going to say after that in the context that he means it to imply. We're just not going to take Bible verses and cherry pick them and make them say whatever we want them to do. People do that all the time. We don't do that here. This is why we preach verse by verse in context so we see what Paul originally wrote to the Corinthians and see it week after week and as we see his argument building. And so what does the word for connect to? What does he not want them to be unaware of? Because this is the point why he doesn't want them to be unaware. And really if we go back to verse 24 of chapter 9, This gives us a good catapult into this next chapter to have a proper understanding. Paul here in verse 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul here, by using the word race, is referring to the Christian life. The New Testament often describes the Christian life in this way as a race that we are running and must keep on running. There's a starting position in the race and there's a finish line in the race. And so as you run the race, you start and then the goal is to finish well. In the same way, runners have a race to win and they have their eyes on the prize. The prize, of course, is first place. This is why runners run in a competition race. In the same way, Christians are to live with the Christian life in that same way in mind. They live to win it. 
How do you win the Christian life? What is the prize in mind? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to glorify him with all that we do. To bring, to have our eyes on him as we reach the lost and share Christ with as many people as possible. In essence, Paul is saying here to the Corinthians who are struggling with this matter of Christian liberty, as we've seen over the last two chapters, to stop living your Christian life as if you're running a race, and then during the race, you stop and smell the roses, or you admire the scenery, or you stop and take a selfie on the track. If you do those things... You won't be expected to win the race because you are distracted. And perhaps you think you're still going to win the race by stopping to smell the roses or taking a selfie on the way. But in essence, as you do that, people are passing you and you've taken your eyes off the prize, which is to finish in first place. And this is what the Corinthians were doing. As they're running their Christian race, as they're run, running their, living their Christian lives, they keep asking themselves this question about the Christian liberty. They keep fighting about things that they can do and they can't do. And, and really the question that they were asking is, how close can I get to sin without sinning? Like how free am I up to this point? Like if I cross that line, I'm sinning. So how fr- I'm free over here, but... And Paul is saying, what are you doing? You are so distracted by your own personal comfort and your personal freedom that you have taken your eyes off of the goal and placed it upon yourselves. How far can I bring myself to the fire without getting burned? How comfortable can I be with my freedom on this side of heaven? Of course, Paul says to them, Christian liberty is a good thing. But if you let it be the main reason you do everything... If you are more concerned for your freedoms than God or people, then you lose. You're so overconfident in your Christian liberty, in your Christian freedom, in in the grace that God has given you, that you're so distracted by things that ultimately don't matter, that you will lose the race. You're overconfident. And this is why he says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Playing a sport, getting ready to run a marathon, requires work. It requires discipline. It requires training. You can't have your eyes on the prize if you're feasting on donuts every day while you're getting ready for the race. Can you eat donuts? Of course you can. Amen, right? But just a side note, many of you don't know that I once bought the one millionth donut in a donut shop in Fort Myers, and I have free donuts and coffee for life. True story. Anyway. God moved me to pastor Northwest Baptist Church six months later. And I'm still fat. But anyway, all right. Can you eat donuts? Of course you can. But if you're preparing for a race and you're eating donuts and you're so distracted by the donuts, 
You're going to take your eyes off the prize. You have to work your body for the race. You have to work your mind and your body for the prize at hand, which is Christ. You're too overconfident. That's not how an athlete prepares to run. So Paul says in verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And here's Paul's point. You could live your Christian life, you could exercise your Christian liberty to the point where you get a little too free. And your freedom trips you up. You have this freedom to do a good thing, but sometimes too much of a good thing is a bad thing because it keeps your eyes off the prize. You've lost your sight on growing in holiness. You've lost your eyes on praying faithfully, reading your Bibles every day. You've taken your eyes off of sharing Christ and glorifying God with everything you do. If you don't exercise self-control and discipline in your Christian life, then you could be disqualified. Paul knows this. And interestingly, the word disqualified here, the original Greek word means phony or unfit. This is why Paul limited his freedom. Even though he had the right to marry, even though he had the right to get paid, he'd rather keep his eyes on the prize and forfeit the things he's entitled to, to Run the race well. Paul is not going to be overconfident that he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has the right to these things. No. He wants to finish well. I don't box like I'm beating the air. I'm not doing this for nothing. The word disqualified could mean unfit. Running a faithful Christian life requires work, discipline, loving God as you fight against your flesh and your sinful desires. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what Paul says, I'm trying to model to you how to live this Christian life so you're not disqualified. You don't look like you're a phony or unfit for the race. How do I do this? I run with purpose. I don't box the air. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Even the things I could have, I don't. I don't want my liberty to be a stumbling block to others and then prove that I'm a phony. I've been given so much in Jesus Christ, including all this freedom. However, my so-called pursuit of Christian liberty, if that shows you that I just love my rights more than I love God, then I disqualify myself. He's issuing this warning to the Corinthians, who already struggle with matters of what? Sex, marriage, and now getting a little bit too close to idols and eating their meat. Yes, you have the right to eat the meat that's been once offered up to idols. How close are you going to get to the fire without getting burned? And now we go to chapter 10, verse 1. For, ah, there's our connecting word. What, is he, what he's about to say is based on what he just said there. You've got to run your race well. Don't get overconfident that you lose your eyes on the prize. For, what Paul? I do not want you to be unaware. Unawares, brothers. 
what? That our fathers were all under the cloud. Here Paul is going to make an illustration of how Old Testament Israel stumbled even though they had freedom because they were too confident now in their new life. This is Paul's point. He's going to use what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness for to warn them. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant what happened to them because what happened to them can happen to you. Notice here as we dig through this, he said our fathers. He's not just talking to the Jewish people in this church. The Corinthian church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. One church, one people. It's not the Jewish church and the Christian church. No, it's the church made up of God's covenant people in Jesus Christ. He's speaking to Gentiles and he includes the Gentiles as being Included with the fathers of the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Yes, they're also the father of the Gentiles as well. Because of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Has the New Testament church replaced Israel as, a, as God's people? No, that's silly. Rather, Paul understands, and we don't have time to dig deeper here. That the church made up of Jews and Gentiles, is the continuation of the Old Testament Israel, is the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, as he refers to it in the book of Galatians, as God's covenant people today. God doesn't have two peoples. He has one people. It's not people who have the same DNA as Abraham. It's the same people who have the same faith as Abraham and the promises of God. The church is not a separate, distinct group in the gospel. No, one people. And I did a five good minute video that's on our website that goes a little deeper into that if you wish to look at that. But he says, our fathers were all under the cloud. This refers back to when Israel left Egypt. After being saved by God to the hand of Moses. After spending 400 years in slavery, God saved his people by the blood of a lamb. God had promised to bring them out of Egypt. Where they were under Pharaoh's tyranny. To a land that God had promised to Abraham. A land flowing with milk and honey. On Passover night, they ate the lamb. They sprinkled the blood on the doorpost. The tenth plague came and killed the firstborn of the, of the sons of Egypt. And God's people left Egypt through the hand of God's servant Moses. And when they left Egypt, where do they go? Where's the promised land? How do we get there? There's no GPS for the next 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. How do they know where to go? Well, look at Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud 
to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The entire time they're wandering in the wilderness, during the day there was this cloud. The cloud represented the presence of God himself. Whenever the cloud moved, they moved and followed the cloud. And at nighttime, it was a pillar of fire. Day or night, they followed the presence of God in the wilderness, wandering. So when he says that our fathers were all under the cloud, in verse 1, this is what he's referring to. I don't want you to be unawares that our fathers, look how blessed they were. They followed the presence of God. They knew where to go, even in the wilderness. Don't be unawares that they also all passed through the sea. They all passed through the sea. Well, as they left Egypt and the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was leading them, they eventually came to a dead end. They came to the Red Sea. And here comes Pharaoh and his armies because Pharaoh changed his mind. God hardened his heart to the chase after the people again. And Israel is faced by a sea that they cannot cross. And the Pharaoh's armies coming behind them to squash them. What do you do? Well, God tells his servant Moses to part the sea and to let his people cross over. Let's read that account because it is fascinating. And Exodus 14, I'll read it to you. Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariots' wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not a one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. From the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that all our fathers were underneath the cloud, the presence of God. Not only that, they all passed through the sea. They were rescued by a miracle from God through his servant Moses. And God squashed the enemies of Israel, Pharaoh and his horses and his men, drowned in that sea. The Lord threw them into the sea. And there wasn't one of them that remained, but every single Israelite survived. And while the chariots of the Egyptians are getting stuck in the mud, the Egyptians are walking on dry ground. All of our fathers passed through the sea. This is amazing. Look at verse 2 and see where Paul's going with all this. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that they all were underneath the cloud. They went through the sea. And verse 2, and were all and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The word baptism here is symbolic. It's not a literal baptism like we dunk underneath the water. They crossed on dry ground. How do you get dunked on dry ground? <laughs> it it's, means something symbolic here. It refers here to the connection that they had to Moses as their new spiritual leader. And the people believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word baptism here means an association with. Israel was associated with Moses now. It was Moses who goes into the heart of Egypt. He goes face to face with Pharaoh demands that God's people be let go, then tells them to sacrifice a lamb, raises his hand, splits the sea, and then Moses leads them to the promised land. It was through his servant Moses they are baptized. Who are they? Well, they're the people of God. They're the people of the Lord. They belong to Yahweh. Well, who's leading them? Yahweh's servant. Moses. They were baptized into Moses, meaning they are now associated. Moses now goes before them as their leader. Moses goes now as their advocate. Moses now goes as their spokesperson. They're known by the name of Yahweh and his servant Moses. Everything that they have at this point is because of God using Moses. They're free because God sent Moses from Pharaoh. They're alive because God sent Moses to split the sea and crush the armies of Pharaoh. They're going to the place where God had promised them because Moses is now leading them with the cloud. And the Israelites are very flawed people as we are. Their identity, this is what this is saying, is now in God's servant, Moses. And this whole theme continues as you read the book of Exodus. It's Moses who goes to the top of the mountain for them to receive the law of God. It was Moses who speaks to God for the people. It was Moses who speaks to the people for God. 
They had an amazing leader. They had Moses, a true servant of God. They even have Moses as one who mediates for them on their behalf and pleads for their forgiveness. God was ready to destroy them when they made the golden calf. Remember? Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. The people are making a golden calf and saying, This is the Lord. This is the Lord that saved us from Pharaoh. And Moses says, Oh boy, we're in trouble. And God, go, he goes back up to the mountain to speak to God. And God says, I am ready to destroy them and start over with you, Moses. And Exodus 32, 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin. But I will go back to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record you have written. Being baptized into Moses, they now, in essence, has Moses as their Savior. As Moses goes to mediate, as Moses goes to intercede, as Moses goes to beg for their forgiveness, and God, and he tells God, God, if it's even possible, punish me and let them go free. Let, let my name be erased so that you can forgive them. Does that remind you of someone else? Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to that later. They're baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Look at verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. I don't want you to be aware. They're all underneath the cloud, went through the sea, baptized into Moses. And they all ate the same spiritual food. What does this mean? It refers to how God fed them in the wilderness. God provided what the scriptures call manna. Manna. It was a bread-like substance that would appear in the morning. And God commanded the Israelites as he provided the manna from heaven, bread from heaven, to go and gather it before the sun melted it and gathered it for your food. In Exodus 16, 14 through 16, Here's the little account of it. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost to the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So God saves them from Egypt. God squashes Pharaoh and his armies. God is giving them a land that he's bringing them to. And now God is feeding them. And they all ate the same spiritual food. They all ate this manna, this bread from heaven. Look at verse 4. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. On two different occasions in this wilderness journey, we read that Israel ran out of water, and the people grew mightily thirsty. In Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, you have two instances where Moses strikes a rock. And when he struck the rock with his staff, the rock split open and water gushed out like a river, the psalmist says. And God gave his people drink. And now Paul, Paul, how does Paul read the Old Testament? As Christ at the center. We're, we're going to talk about that in a second. But it's kind of interesting how Paul relates it here. He said the spiritual rock that followed them. And interestingly, I learned this week that there was, a, there was a rabbi myth at the time. There was a rabbi myth that there was this rock that traveled with the Israelites in the wilderness that gave them perpetual water. There's no record of that in the Old Testament. It's a legend. I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. I think he's building upon that kind of wordplay to think that, do you think that all those provisions, your entire time in the wilderness, that God fed you with water twice from a rock, do you think that was by accident? Who was sustaining you, Israelites, in the wilderness? It was the rock who the Old Testament time and time again refers to as God himself. God is the rock. The Lord is my rock. And the Lord strikes the rock and out comes living water. And it follows them. It sustains them. What Paul is essentially saying here is that rock that followed our ancestors in the wilderness was the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. He was, being, he was sustaining them with spiritual food and spiritual drink. Taking upon himself. Being stricken so that the people can live. Even though they thirsted, they could have their thirst quenched. This is how Paul sees his Old Testament. Christ-centered. It is Jesus who is the rock. The rock of our salvation. The rock of our faith. The rock of our sustenance in our wilderness journey. Not only for us now, in this New Testament age, New Covenant age, but also he was the Messiah that they didn't even know was there. In the presence of the cloud. And the manna from heaven and the water that flowed. As a type in their servant Moses. Christ was there. Christ was there. This is how Jesus read his Old Testament. Jesus knew he was the point of the entire Bible. On the road to Emmaus, he meets two disciples on the way. After the resurrection, they're talking about, did you hear what happened in town this week? Jesus is there. They don't even know it's Jesus. Then they, Jesus begins teaching them, and he opens their eyes and their hearts to understand what he's saying. And this is what Jesus says to them. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms 
must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see there? Everything written about me where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Is what? About me. It's about me. He's telling these disciples, oh, what a Bible study that would have been to listen to. And Paul, where does Paul get this from? He gets it from the Lord himself. So when Paul looks at this Old Testament story, he sees Christ everywhere. The cloud by day, it was Jesus. The pillar of fire by night, Jesus. The baptism into Moses, a picture of Jesus. The spiritual food, Jesus, who is the bread of life. And the spiritual drink, the water from the rock, Jesus. Jesus who said, let those who thirst come and drink, Jesus. What is Paul saying here? I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Our fathers had it all. They had Moses. They were saved from slavery. They had bread and drink and a land. They were once slaves. They had everything they needed. They had everything they needed. And you know what? They still complained. They grumbled. And they went after idols. They had all of this freedom. They're not underneath Pharaoh anymore. And yet, there was moments in that wilderness journey where they complained to Moses and said, I wish God would just kill us. We had it better when we were back in Egypt making bricks. At least we had meat. They complained. They became overconfident in their freedom that they lost track of the goal, the promised land. God's servant Moses and being the people of God and obeying the law of God. This is what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. Our fathers, don't want you to be ignorant, they had it all. They were also slaved out of, saved out of slavery. And now you are just like them. God has given you Corinthians a Moses. His name is Jesus. God has saved you from slavery, from Egypt. It's called your sin in this world. God has given you spiritual bread. It's Jesus who's the bread of life. And you remember him when you partake of the Lord's Supper. You have your spiritual bread as well. He's given you a spiritual drink. Jesus, who said, thirst. All those who are thirsty, come. And we could drink of him. And we remember that when we observe the Lord's table again, when we take the cup and remember him. And he has given us a land which he has promised us, the new heavens and the new earth. God has blessed them. God has blessed us. They are free and we are free. But guess what? Your freedom can trip you up. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Let us learn from their mistakes. In verse 5, even though they had it all, even though they had it all, look at verse, what he says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, 
God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the word overthrown is a very graphic Hebrew word, which means, in a sense, their bodies were thrown all over the place. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Two million Jews left Egypt, approximately. So Bible scholars estimate, left in the Exodus. Two million. Guess how many reached the promised land? Two. Two out of two million. What happened? They didn't run their race well. And they disqualified themselves. This is Paul's point. This is why that word four is in the beginning of chapter 10. Less, do you think I'm beating against the air, boxing against the air? Do you think I'm not running? No, I discipline my body unless I should be disqualified by my use of freedom. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, only Joshua and Caleb made it out of Egypt into the promised land. From that generation, of course, their child, the children of the wilderness generation, of course, also went into the promised land. So more than two, obviously. But the, the Egyptian captives that went out of Egypt, only two, Joshua and Caleb made it. Why? Because God was not pleased and overthrew them in the wilderness. Not even Moses made it. As Moses disobeyed God and as a punishment, God kept him out of the wilderness, out of the promised land. He let him see it from a distance before he died. But even Moses disqualified himself. They didn't run their race, race well. They didn't keep their eyes on the prize. They didn't exercise self-control. They complained and grumbled even though they had freedom. They accused God of wrongdoing. They rebelled against Moses. They fell into idolatry. They fell into immorality. And you know what's happening in Corinth? The same things. Even though they have freedom, the Corinthians are falling into immorality. We've already seen in chapter 5, this guy sleeping with his stepmother. And now they're eating meat sacrificed to idols and abusing that freedom, trying to get too close to the fire because they love that juicy, meaty steak. Keep your eyes on the prize. It's not about the meat you can enjoy. It's about finishing well. The Israelites abused their freedom and couldn't finish well. And this is why Paul says in verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Those Israelites should serve as an example to us that when you have the freedom from slavery and you have the freedom and the right to do certain things that you better be careful because you will be your own worst enemy if you don't discipline and exercise and exercise self-control well over your freedom. They didn't finish well when only two out of two million of the original 
ones who exited Egypt made it. They had all the good stuff that you do. You have a savior. You've been saved from freedom, from slavery. You've been given bread. You've been given drink. And you've been given a land. Will you finish well? Or will you stumble over these questions that want to destroy other people because you want to gratify yourself? Oh, Corinthians, don't be like them. Don't be like them. We all have a place to start in this life, don't we? We're all born. Some of us become born again. We're Christians. But just because you become born again doesn't mean you're going to run your race well. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation and don't make it to heaven because whatever. But even Paul says he's got to be very careful. And his pursuit of freedom that he doesn't disqualify himself. Later on in this chapter, we'll see this next week or the week after. These Corinthians are so overconfident in their freedom that Paul says, take heed. You think you're standing, but you could fall. And every single one of us in this room is one stupid decision away from ruining the rest of our lives. Don't take your eyes off the prize. Glorify God. Glorify God. Be willing to give up your freedom for his glory and loving other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy word. Oh God, humble us in our overconfidence that some of us might have in this Christian life when it comes to the freedom that we exercise. As Paul says, he has to continually exercise self-control Discipline his body. He runs with purpose because the Israelites who left Egypt are our examples of what not to do. They did not finish well. God, we're all imperfect here. We all stumble in this race. We all stop to smell the roses. We all stop to take selfies. We all stop and get distracted by the things in life that don't matter. I pray that you'll keep us on track, that you'll keep our eyes focused, that Christ will be our prize, that we will continue to grow in holiness and pursue that, that we'll grow deeper in the love of your word, deeper in the love of your people, that we would serve you more faithfully. God, that we would crucify our flesh and our pride in the name of the one who died for us counting our death in him. We have been crucified in Christ and therefore we no longer live. And so God, may now the life that we live be for him and him alone. God, so many of us are one decision away from a stupid mistake.
that will cost us dearly. Help us to finish well. We stumble, we fall, but help us, God, by your grace to keep moving forward. Give us a love for your word. May the Holy Spirit empower obedience to it. We know the word is sharp, piercing asunder our soul and spirit, discerning our thoughts and intentions of our heart. And God, as this word is being preached, your spirit is convicting hearts. I know. You're bringing application of this message to their hearts so they know what they ought to do differently to repent and to confess sin. Oh, help us, God. Accomplish what you want in your word, in your people, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.